Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. My name is Aaron Laxon. Alongside with Robert Brining, beaming across the United States and around the world. Your 90-minute dose of hope brought to you each and every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You may follow along in the conversation on social media, Facebook and Twitter, and PazIM. And at PazIM.org, that's PazIM.org. We encourage you to join in the conversation at 347 215 9442, that's by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Need health insurance? Want to receive free screenings, vaccines, and counseling? 
Even if you have a pre-existing condition, enrollment is now open. Apply today so you can have coverage beginning January 1st. Visit healthcare.gov or call the marketplace at 1-800-318-2596 to apply. Get covered, stay healthy. For the most accurate health information, visit www.cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO. Now, we should say that if you are trying to use the Health Marketplace website, um, you may experience uh, lengthy wait times. Um, Don't get discouraged. Keep going back. Um, There's a lot of great information in there, as we heard from Joey Wynn down in Florida. Um, So don't get frustrated. Just keep going back. So, Robert, we had a couple of phenomenal stories this week. and so I want to share them with you and the listeners. I guess first off um, was an article in the Washington Blade, and it was outlining the government shutdown and its impacts on HIV-AIDS programs, um, and as as well as LGBT workers. Um, key programs for people living with HIV and AIDS are among the programs affected by this government shutdown. And I'm sure by now everybody is sick and tired of hearing about the shutdown. But according um, to the shutdown plan from the Department of Health and Human Services, the cutoff of federal funds means a loss of oversight for Ryan White AIDS grants, a freeze in new medical research from the NIH, and there's no more updates for treatment and prevention recommendations for HIV um, at the CDC. Um, Winnie Stachelberg, who is the Executive Vice President um, for External Affairs at the Center for American Progress blamed the right wing um, of the Republican Party for the negative impact on the HIV-AIDS programs. She went on to say, um, the Tea Party Republicans are playing irresponsible politics with men, women, and children living with AIDS. Um, You know, it's a typical he said, she said, blame game in Washington. Um, What we really need to encourage our listeners to do is, you know, you have congressional and senatorial offices in your home, city, and states. We need to make our presence known. And even though they may not be staffed, I encourage people, engage the media. Let the media know you're going to have an action at their office and that we're not simply, you know, being quiet. One of the things I heard this week that just flabbergasted me was that um, pieces of money were being restored to the NIH so that children with cancer, their research could go on. So what's that mean for people living with HIV, that we're not as important as children living with cancer? I'm not trying to be heartless. What I'm saying is if we're going to start prioritizing people, you know, we've been fighting this thing for 33 years. So we're kind of, we've been in line for a while, right? Yes. So... That, that's that. I mean, if you want to read more about that, you can certainly go on the Washington Blade. Um, a more disheartening kind of story, um, I know that Nick Rhodes has been on this show um, several times, as well as Sean um, and uh, Robert from the Cero Project. Yes. So a report out of San Francisco, and it's been reported on multiple news outlets, but that um, – Unfortunately, the appeals court ruled against Nick Rhodes 
Um, it was a bitter disappointment to the group's challenge of the state law that criminalized HIV transmission. They did that on Wednesday. In a 3-0 ruling, an Iowa Court of Appeals panel rejected that argument. Um, Judge Richard Doyle wrote that while the risk appears low, the transmission of HIV through unprotected oral sex is still possible. Uh, Rhodes' physician testified that while Rhodes' viral load was undetectable at the time, there was still a risk. The court declined to address the question of whether someone could be prosecuted under the law if he wore a condom during sex. I mean, there's a lot of questions we don't know. Um, this article went on to say that the Iowa Attorney General's office, which defended Rose's prosecution, supported the ruling. Um, and they noted that the office worked with lawmakers last session um, during an unsuccessful attempt to update the statute. So, you know, things are moving forward. Um, but this is a, a very sad, uh, you know, announcement that. So, so what Nick does that has, what does that mean exactly for uh, Nick? Like, does that well, mean that he has to go means, back to jail or? No, I mean originally he was given a 25 year sentence that was subsequently reduced, I believe, to a five year sentence and a lifelong registry as a sex offender. Um. Actually, after an outcry over the sentence, the judge reconsidered and freed Rose after roughly 18 months behind bars, and he's on probation and required to register as a sex offender for life. So basically, with the appellate court saying, in their, with their ruling, is he's still going to have to register as a sex offender, and he'll still be on probation for the amount of time that the court has ruled. Wow. That's insane. Well, I guess you know, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, the next step is it could go to the higher appellate court. Who knows, though? Right. But as, as you know, somebody listening to HIV positive, it can be disheartening. But these things, these HIV criminalization laws, these are the things that um, we need to speak up about. These are the things that we're too quiet about. And and if anything, you know, will maybe uh, catapult you into being an activist, maybe it's these laws. You know, maybe these are the things that maybe you want to go out and start talking about and making noise about because we need to start doing that. We need to start making noise about the issues that are affecting the HIV community because if we're not going to do it, nobody's going to do it for us. Right. And then the um, Saturday there was uh, World AIDS Cure Days that took place all around um, the United States. Um, I actually attended the one here in St. Louis. It was launched by the AIDS Project, or Policy Project, and it's a new annual awareness day uh, for advocates um, to really become aware of where we are in a cure. Um, the goal is to spread the word about the state of cure research as well as cure activism. Um, teaching materials and images for Facebook and Twitter um, were made available to all those who wanted to attend. And I actually just spoke very briefly with um, the organizer here in St. Louis, um, and I'm going to play that clip. Um, we will also be having him uh, on the show uh, in November, and his name is Stephen Holdsworth. Um, and here I want to play this clip for you. St. Louis Library today was the first ever um, Cure Day, and this was spearheaded by you in cooperation with some other organizations. Can you kind of tell me about that? Sure. It's the ACE Policy Project um, that really came up with the idea and sent out a call around the country. And as soon as I saw it, I knew that I wanted to do it here in St. Louis. 
I was really turned on to cure research in 2010. I attended uh, a Catalyst conference in Baltimore where it was the first time in uh, recent years that I had really been introduced again to where we were with cure research. And since then, I've been chatting about it to a number of people, but it never got any traction. And I figured this was a great chance to sort of get that research out there and talk more about it. So from all of your... So that was just a little piece of that. We'll have more of Stephen's story. Um, you know, he has been in this fight for years and years and years. Um, in that interview, he goes on to talk about his time with Act Up New York and the early days of um, of fighting HIV and AIDS, even before it was even called HIV. Um, and then the last thing um, that came out this week was Another guest that's been on the show uh, multiple times, um, I'm still Josh. And he basically has come up with an open letter on PrEP. Um, and he is asking for people, if you agree uh, with this letter, to sign on as an influencer. And basically this is a letter uh, to the community in support of recommending those that are at highest risk of HIV infection to discuss the use of PrEP with their physicians. Um, I've signed on to this and others um, such as Kevin Maloney from Rise Up to HIV and so forth have signed on to this. And so anyone, any of the listeners who's interested in finding out more about that can do so at imstilljosh.com and simply click on the open letter on PrEP um, tab at the top of the menu. That's interesting. And that, that, um, yeah, that. it's it's a very interesting um, concept. You know, we are trying to, you know, raise awareness on PrEP. I mean, and there's some notable names on the list, um, Timothy Brown, Maria uh, Mejia, um, and, I mean, there, there's just a whole laundry list of people who, who agree that this is something. Mark S. King, you know, he he's an yeah. influencer as well. Um, and so... We want to get the conversation about PrEP. Regardless of, you know, is it perfect? No. Um, is it for everybody? No. But we all agree that PrEP can be a tool that can be useful, um, especially to those who are in discordant relationships. And so let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Let's let's yeah. move forward with this since it's a great tool. That's interesting, Aaron, because before we spoke um, about this issue – in um, Florida at the Positive Living Conference, I was totally against it. I thought it was a bad idea. I thought it was going to be misused. You know what I mean? I just had all these issues. But after hearing you speak about it and talking about it and how passionate you are about how it can still be an option for people to use and it should be an option. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not something that I, I feel everybody should go out and do, but it should be an, like an option, a last resort, that and that possibility should be available to people. And I owe you and, and, and you talking about it to, to, to kind of changing my mind. And that's, you know, why we have the show and that's why as activists we, we have conversations to, to, you know, engage and to actually empower each other. We all learn from each other. And, that, I mean, that's the great thing about the work that we do. Um, you know, the ability to change our minds and the ability to grow on a particular topic, I think that's the, the diversity that we have in our, in our community that makes us great. So I'd, I'd like to remind the listeners that um, we have some amazing guests coming up besides 
um, the fabulous staff Garter, who's on tonight, um, October 20th, so not next weekend, but the week following, we're going to have the founding uh, the founder of Mr. Friendly, um, David Watt, who is going to come on and talk, tell us about his story and what drove him to really create Mr. Friendly. And then on October 27th, we have um, award-nominated actor and activist from How to Survive a Plague, Peter Staley, who will be joining us. Um, so we want the listeners to be sure to check those out. Um, and right now, I'd like to remind the callers, if you want to call in, 347-215-9442. And in a little bit, let me check here. Are you? Do you think Mr. Garner is on the line? I'm not sure if that's Davis. Davis, you're on the line, hit one, so we know it's you. Um, I, I know he'll be calling in soon, so okay. I'm pretty sure that that actually may be him or not. So, but, but the, I, mean, um, I would encourage all of the listeners to, um, you know, we've been telling this too, you know, the, along with this new format, really we want to know what is going on in your community. Um, we want to recognize those people who are working hard, who are working tirelessly, who um, maybe don't, they don't get the recognition that, that other people do. Um, what are they doing that's successful? And, you know, maybe some things are great. Maybe some things are not great. And this is really the place, the, uh, the forum, to talk about those things and to collaborate amongst ourselves. Yeah, it's important for people to realize that, you know, we're always looking for people to come on and share their story. It's, it's, it's not about the people that we see on TV or read about in newspapers. It's about the average everyday person, you know, who wants to make a difference and maybe share their story for the first time. A lot of people have used the radio show as an outlet to maybe come out to their family or, or to actually start the discussion and accept their own status. So if, you know, you're interested in coming on and sharing your story, contact us. We would love to uh, hear from you all. I love getting, like, you know, people who are sharing for the first time and has their family listening. I think they're, the, they're my favorite interviews because it's so personal and it's like, you know what I mean? Like it's a moment in that family's life that they're never going to forget and they did it on our show. And I, I don't know. Those shows touch me. No, it's, it's, it's definitely, I think this is the, those are the things that make it worthwhile um, and, and let people know that we are not alone. Um, you know, I, through YouTube and and now on on Pause I Am, um, we hear so many stories from people who are either newly diagnosed or maybe that person who has been diagnosed for a while, a long-term survivor such as that. And it's going to be two completely different perspectives on um, on how they handle things. Although there will be you know similarities. So I see that Dab um, is on the line. I'm going to. We're going to bring him on in 30 seconds. I'd like to remind everybody this is Pause I Am. Um, this show will go on until 1030, and we invite you to join in the conversation at 347-215-9442. 
What's, ready to What's going on out here? We got changes to make. It's time to wake up for humanity's sake. Break the silence today before it's too late. AIDS is affecting us, disrespecting us. I'ma go get tested. It's a simple maneuver. It's not about the past. It's about my future. I'm not trying to miss it. I won't be a statistic, so I protect myself whenever I'm intimate. At this moment, I decided to have a plan. It's time to take a stand, because AIDS, I'm greater than. This is Senior Chaos, and this was my deciding moment. Tell us yours at greaterthan.org. All right, and I think there's that. No, there he is. Aaron? Uh, You want to bring him on? Yeah, yeah, I just didn't know if I lost you there for a second. Uh, We are back live here on Pazine Radio, uh, Robert Brining, and I'm joined by the amazing Aaron Laxton, and we're about to be (laughs) even more empowered and, and, and not only entertained, but how about educated um, and, and I don't know. Let's just bring them on. Dab Garner, welcome to the show. <laughs> How's it going, guys? Good, man. How are you? Doing good, doing good. Oh. It is so great to have you back on the show again and seeing you uh, last weekend. You look amazing. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. <laughs> well, I'm lucky. After 32 years of living with this virus, just to be upright, I'm extremely fortunate. Uh, there's only a few friends left from the 80 that are still with us now. <laughs> but earlier, you were speaking about a couple of subjects. Number one, about Nick. Uh, Nick's a good friend of mine. He's also one of our ambassadors of hope. And the fact that the judge did not overturn that sentence based upon the evidence given is a sure sign of HIV stigma and discrimination. It is deplorable that given the case that he is still found guilty. I totally agree. And And I have to give it to Nick and Sean and Robert for all their hard work on the subject matter. Um, Second is this government closing down, and what's that going to cause to our community? Um, It's bad enough what's going to happen to all Americans, but this can severely impact our community as far as funding, access to medications, research, and it's something that everyone needs to start jumping on the bandwagon emailing and calling their elected officials. Yeah, it would be real interesting. Um, I saw that um, Peter Staley had been at an event, and uh, Larry Kramer had made some comments about the current state of activism. I only say that to say this, that people, if you're listening to this show, if you hear my voice, if you hear Dab's voice, and you're not angry about what's going on, and you're not concerned with the state of what's going on with HIV healthcare and AIDS programming, you need to wake up. And I'm not an alarmist. I'm not, you know, an extremist. I'm a realist. And um, none of us know what's going to happen with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Ryan White will change. Um, and uh, but I agree with you that we need to get we need to get angry. Definitely. I think, and I brought this up at the conference, 
one of the problems is so many people have been diagnosed since we've had life-saving medications. There's not a sense of urgency. People don't have friends dying by the dozens every month. And to a certain extent, our funding, our programs are being taken for granted. People think they're like Social Security and Medicare, that they're always going to be there and nothing could be further from the truth. Right. Certainly not. And, it's you know, we all know that it's one of those things where the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, you know, not – I uh, there's actually an article that's coming out, and please, listeners, if you read the article um, <laughs> and you have hate mail for me, um, you know, you can send it to me. I write very inflammatory stuff, you know, uh, much like Tyler Curry or other people, but my pieces are meant to be thought-provoking. And I'll, I'm just going to tease you with the title, and the title of it is, What If Ryan White Would Have Been Black? Um, right now, we have a huge issue um, with our communities of color becoming infected uh, with HIV. And uh, so, anyway, I want the listeners to watch out for this. It'll be on a news outlet um, in your area, um, so be looking for that. But we have to get angry. I, I agree, Deb. Well, and the first thing that points that more work needs to be done is the numbers of young gay, and not just young gay men, but gay men of all ages who are now testing positive. I'm not coming down or berating these people for becoming infected. I'm berating the system for not doing a better job of awareness, education, and prevention. It, it, and it is that it seems to be there's that generational divide where you're right. You know, I and I said this at the Positive Living Conference when we were out on the beach, uh, or I, may, I said it to someone before that. I said, you know, I don't know anyone who has passed from AIDS, thankfully. But I think uh, many times because uh, we do have younger community members who they don't have that context of where we came from, where a person one day would go into the hospital and then maybe they would leave or if they would leave, they would be severely debilitated and, you know, they would be less of the person that, you know, you'd see a 25-year-old go in and the person that would come out of the hospital would look like they were, you know, 50 or 60. Um, and I don't know how we, I don't know how we, uh, we address that and we get that sense of urgency in today's young people. Do you have any suggestions? Unfortunately, uh, and, and I hate to say this, but I think it's going to take a dire situation to get a certain percentage to become more involved. Um, like I said, I know with the young people or the newly infected that I speak with, they don't know the history behind the illness. They don't know the history behind the funding. They haven't had to go through losing a ton of friends, most of them. Um, I hate to think it's going to take something like that happening again to get people active, to get them caring about the funding, caring about other members of their community. And, and this isn't just addressed to gay men or men of color or women. It's the whole community. I, I, I've not seen, 
for the most part, you, you see maybe 1% of the people living with this actually doing something. Right. Right. So I think you know, you've, you've given us a great segue. Um, you know, when I heard your story at the Positive Living Conference, and there may be listeners on on that are listening right now that have never heard your story, and you can start wherever you, you really wish, but what propelled you um, to to do what you're doing? I mean, you could have easily just sat down and given up, and, um, and we're kind of getting ahead of everything, but I think the one thing that struck with me was your perseverance, your unwillingness to allow this thing to knock you out. Well, for me, I had already watched five people die in quarantine, um, although you couldn't actually go into the room, before I was admitted to the hospital and put in quarantine myself. At the time, I had just turned 19 a few months before and was being told that I wouldn't live to see my 20th birthday. Well, at first, they didn't even think I'd make it out of the hospital. And that's why I give it, started giving people teddy bears is because they were dying alone. And it was my way of showing them that someone cared and loved them. When I finally, and I had to fight to get out of quarantine. They didn't want to let me out because they didn't know how this was transmitted at the time. Because this is uh, Valentine's of 1982. <clears throat> I guess once you're told you're going to die, it puts a whole new perspective on life, and it really pissed me off that none of the politicians, none of the general media, except for the gay media, was talking about this at all. Our president had never said the word HIV or AIDS until 1985 after Rock Hudson died. Actually, I think it was 86. So anger and watching people die, huge motivator. Um, and I wasn't ready to die. And if I was going to die, I was going to go out making noise to where someone was paying attention to what was happening to people. Wow. So, so how old were you when you first got that diagnosis that, and you got that, that dreaded, you know, that news that you, you now had this thing? I was devastated. I was so young, and I'm being told, uh, well, you're going to die, and sorry, we don't know how it's transmitted. There's nothing to treat it. Uh, go make your final arrangements, and voila. And after finally getting them to let me out of the hospital, luckily I had a group of friends to go home to because this is before HIPAA, and this is before the Americans with Disability Act. That didn't happen until 14 years later. My name was published, my picture, what I had. So I, I never had a choice about being in the closet. Right. One of the one of the things that um, you know I, I love about hearing you you talk is, is the history, and I, it's important for our youth to to know that when you were diagnosed, you weren't actually diagnosed with HIV or AIDS. What was it that you were diagnosed with? At the time, it was called GRID, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. It was called that on the West Coast and gay cancer on in New York City. 
until 1983, when it was finally changed to HIV. Um, one of the other things that you were speaking about was being in quarantine yourself. What was that like? Um, picture being trapped somewhere all by yourself where you have no contact with anyone that isn't wearing a NASA uniform, no human touch, very little empathy. In fact, there was only one nurse that I considered to be empathetic at all. Um, and basically told, sorry, you're going to die. And they walk out of the room. There was no counseling. Uh, no friends or family could come in. And you're just sitting there waiting to die. God. Kids today who are diagnosed don't know how fortunate they are to be able to get tested. And if you are found out to be reactive or positive, you you know you usually have immediate right there to get connected to services and have that linkage and you know, it's 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 shocking to hear you know how it was, and I think people need to understand that that this we're so fortunate now in 2013 from the medications to the services that are offered to actually you know to, to survive this disease, and it's it's a shame that we had to lose so many people to this beforehand. You know, so many friends, so many of your friends, and and all that for us to get to where we are. But you carry their story with you, and I think that's what's the most important thing. Well, until 1986, when you died, everything in the room was incinerated. You couldn't be buried uh, besides infectious disease doctors. No one would see you. I don't care if it was a dentist, a general practitioner. Even in San Francisco, if they knew you had this, you were not going to get an appointment. You could lose your job your housing, and your friends all in 24 hours. Before we finally got funding approved in 1990, the way that we took care of people as they came out of quarantine and then the hospital was people who died left behind whatever money they had left to take care of those who were dying. There was no Ryan White funding. There were no AIDS service organizations until the mid to late 80s. And then the national funding didn't come for another three or four years. The way we funded these organizations to start with were money left by the dead, drag queens in the leather community doing fundraisers. Huh. So was there a time when, and this is, I hope not a personal question. I mean, I think in every person's diagnosis, there's a time where they just, they're trying to wrap their head around this thing. And was there a time where you actually thought that, you know what, I'm not going to make it another six months. I'm not going to make it a year from now. Um, was that a, Was that a possibility? Oh, God, yes. There were several times between 1982 and 1995 um, that I, I I never expected to live to see 20 or 25, much less now be in my 50s. Um, the first medications that came out made you sicker than, well, at least they made me sicker than a dog. 
to the point that I finally went to my doctor and said, I'd rather die than take this. Um, There was a time when I was battling non-Hodgkin's lymphoma where the chemo and the radiation destroyed my immune system and I was down to four T-cells. I weighed 148 pounds and I'm six foot one. Not a pretty sight. We used to have an expression called the walking dead. And I'm not talking about the TV show on AMC. I'm talking (laughs) people with full-blown AIDS who look like skeletons. We also had an expression in the 80s and early 90s called survivor guilt. And it was those of us that were living five or more years when all our friends were dying and we weren't doing anything different than the people that had died. That was one of the things that we actually spoke about last week in the in the news headlines um, was, um, you know, uh, long-term survivors having uh, PTSD. PT, what is it, PTSD, right? PTSD, well, yeah. That, okay. Um, do you struggle with that at all? I did more in the 90s than I do now. I think one thing that I would urge people today, whether they're newly diagnosed and becoming activists or they're long-term activists or they're friends or family of people living with HIV, is please stay in contact with your long-term survivors. Mm-hmm. For example, Spencer Cox. Spencer had been such an activist for our community for so many years. And unfortunately, because people tend to take, I'm not saying that they take activists or long-term activists for granted, but they're so used to us being out there and doing and doing and doing that if we disappear for a month or two, they don't think anything about it. And that's kind of what happened to Spencer is he was traumatized. He had some demons he was fighting, but he had no one no one there to catch him when the demons caught up with him. And because of that, he's no longer with us today. All right. We um, Hang on uh, one second, uh, Dad. I want to let everybody know this is Pause. I am radio. I am Aaron Laxon alongside with Robert Bryan, and if you would like to call in to speak with Dab or with either of us, you may do so by calling in to 347-215-9442. One second, Dab. We will be right back with you, okay? All right. I am a mother. I am an entrepreneur. I'm a journalist. I am a singer. A businesswoman. I am an artist. An educator. A sister. An advocate. A leader. A queen. I am a friend. I am. I am. I am. I am. I am. I am. I am am one of more more than than a million million people living with with HIV HIV in the U.S. We We are are not alone. alone. Let's Let's stop stop HIV together. Get the facts. Get tested. Get involved. It's so amazing when we hear that. Uh, That's actually from the uh, uh, one of the program or one of the campaigns from the CDC. Most of those people that were on that uh, have been on this program at one point or another. Uh, Michelle Anderson, Jamar Rogers, 
um, and a few others. So we. I thought I heard some familiar voices on there. (laughs) Right, they're lending their voices. So, anyway, thank you for uh, hanging out with us, Deb. We're back to you. So, you, you're, you're diagnosed with this thing called GRID, which we now know is HIV. You're a young man struggling just with with life in general, being a young a young person, um, and you find the tenacity to say, you know what, I'm not going to let this thing get to me. If that was all your story was, that alone would be, I mean, astonishing. But it doesn't quite stop there, does it? No, another big part <laughs> of my life um, was I started becoming involved with children with HIV. And it started with one little girl. I was already very out about my status and an activist. And a friend contacted me from San Francisco General because a small girl had been born premature. Her mother had died right after childbirth, and they didn't know who the father was because the mother was a prostitute. Now, this was 1985. As you can imagine, no one wanted a child with HIV in 1985, and this little girl was also born deformed because of alcohol fetal syndrome. So you have a minority child, HIV, and she's deformed. My second partner, who was also positive, Brad, and I went in the hospital, saw this little girl in an incubator. Now, they have this child totally separated from every other child in the nursery. None of the nurses were going near, and they're paying attention to all these other children. By this time, I had probably lost close to three or 400 friends, half of them in quarantine. And I'm watching a small, preemie baby be totally ignored, like, oh, she's just going to die. It pissed me off so bad, I grabbed a nurse and wasn't very nice to her, found out who I needed to go talk to at the hospital, and they put me in touch with the Department of Children and Family Services. We couldn't legally adopt her because we were gay, so we became her uh, foster parents. Took her home with us. We didn't know how long she had to live. They estimated three to six months. They had no experience with children being born with us. We didn't know how long we had to live. All I knew was that whatever time she had on this earth, I wanted the child to feel like she was loved. And we had a ton of help. It wasn't just the two of us. We had members of our men's group lesbian friends, straight female friends, because we were both working, and we were both activists. So it took a village to raise her. Um, She ended up making it to age four, surprisingly. I mean, she had health problems off and on, probably spent a third of her life in the hospital. But Christmas was her favorite holiday. And I'd shop all year long. Um, 
She went in the hospital August the 3rd, and on the morning of the 14th, she asked me if I would make, I asked her what she wanted, was like, do you want to go to Disneyland? I, I was just trying to get her thinking better thoughts. Right. And she looked up and she goes, will you make other kids like me feel loved? And it just struck me. I don't know if a child knows they're dying. I know from way too much experience that adults do. Right. But I look down at my little girl, and it's like, if that's what you want, that's what I'll do. And later that day, she took her last breath. Wow. And I already knew the kids, because at that time, there were nine other kids that were being treated at San Francisco General Hospital. So we, we went out, got nine bears, split up the toys that we already had for her for that Christmas, and did our first teddy bear touchdown. It wasn't called that that year. Um, right. But that's what we ended up calling the events. And then the next year, because I already knew activists from L.A. and New York City, we added those two cities. And now 24 years later, we do 22 cities in the U.S. and 18 foreign countries. And what is it exactly that the Teddy Bear Touchdown is? Uh, Teddy Bear Touchdown is a holiday party. Um, Depending on where the child is located in the world, it might be a Christmas party, it could be a Hanukkah party, it could be a Kwanzaa party. But it's right. for the holidays. Every child gets a teddy bear, no matter whether they're a newborn or 17 years of age. And they get the, that at the actual party. Then whoever, their parent, guardian, orphanage worker, uh, they pick out a second item that the child opens on their special holiday. We also have uh, cookies, food. Um, For the ones that uh, observe Christmas, we have a Santa there, a photographer there to take their pictures of Santa. Um, We try and make it a very nice holiday party for the kids. Uh, Back in the 80s and 90s, most of these kids were not being raised by a biological parent. They were in an orphanage. They were being raised by grandparents because the parents had already died. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they were wards of the state. So how long, when was the first year you did it? How long have you been doing the teddy bear touchdowns? This year will be our 24th year. See, I think that's incredible. You you were meant to cross paths. With her, her name is Candace, right? If I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh huh. You, I, I really mean like in in fate, you guys were meant to cross each other's paths. Like she was there for you, you were there for her, and and there was there was meaning in that, there was purpose, and that's what it's done. I mean, you've been doing it for so long, and and now you have you know the, the dad the age bear that is all over the world. You see people taking pictures online. Uh, tell us a little bit about where dad came from and and where uh, you know how that all started. 
Well, the way that started is, as I was saying earlier, Candace was born deformed because of alcohol fetal syndrome. So her little mouth, instead of being in the front, was on the side of her face. Uh, one of her ears was miniaturized and on her cheek, and she had other internal deformities. So when she spoke, words didn't come out exactly like they would for most people, like dad came out dab. Uh, it's kind of like Barbara Walters talk, but mm-hmm. even more muffled. So right. that's how I got the nickname Dab. And my partner was Dabby instead of Daddy. So she had ah. Dad and Daddy. And so when we started doing the Bears for the Children to memorialize her, we actually changed the name of the bear to Dab the AIDS Bear. Because that's about the same time that the Red Ribbon came out. Oh, wow. So I have to, um, you know, your story just amazes me each time I hear it. Um, you know, we are actually part of the same family, um, uh, Mama's Leather family. Oh, um, I didn't know you remember. That's fantastic. We were everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So I am. I was pinned last year. I'm uh, Mama's kinky educator, and um, yeah, for all the stuff I do with HIV. And I, I actually, I had to. I just went on the Mama's website, and of course, tell the listeners what your. Everybody has a Mama's name. It always starts with Mama. And what is your Mama's uh, pin name? I'm Mama's age there. That's right. And it's a, a close knit family. Uh, uh, Mama or Sandy Reinhardt is, is the leader of the, the largest leather family, uh, basically in the world, and we meet so many amazing people. Now I'm going to ask you a really difficult question, um, and if you can't answer it, then then that's fine. No pressure. With with the, <laughs> you know, you see so many children that are hurting, and and. I mean, obviously, seeing a child in despair is just heartbreaking. Can you tell us a time where you just basically, you know, had to step away for a second whenever they were receiving these bears or or you were visiting with a child that was just really sick? Can you think of a time when, when that happened? I I can say I have never stepped away from a child. I have, after going through one of those situations and I have finished speaking with the child, broken down in many hallways, back rooms, away from where the child would see me do it, Um, especially in the 80s and 90s when most of the kids that came to our parties didn't live past age 10 or 12. Right. The one thing uh, that, luckily, that luckily the kids are are living longer now here in the U.S. But once you get out of Europe and the U.S., a majority of these kids still don't live past fifteen or sixteen. See, and that's just uh, it. It, um, it blows my mind away. I, I I do think many times that we're a spoiled um, generation living with HIV. A younger generation uh, today, the person that gets infected and and is told they're living with HIV, we have amazing medications that will keep us healthy. 
you know, that's just, I was diagnosed on June 6th of 2011, so I'm a relative, you know, new kid on the block. But I can't imagine what it would be like, and I've heard multiple people tell me this, and, and I can't imagine what it would be like for a child or even if they would fathom this, but you would be walking down the street and you would see somebody who had that look, the look in their eyes. You could tell by looking at them maybe they had wasting or, or whatever, and you would know that's going to be me. That's, you know, although I might be healthy right now, that's going to be me. And do do you think children comprehend that what the progression of HIV will be for them? I can tell you they definitely do. As early as age five or six, they still do today outside of the U.S. When you go to places in Africa, the Middle East, parts of Mexico, where healthcare is not what we have here, they still watch the progression and they still see their older friends or older brothers and sisters dying. These kids have to grow up really quick. I worked at an orphanage for the summer in Uppington, South Africa. It gets as cold in Uppington as northern Canada. And these children, a lot of them don't even have shoes. They have to put a jug on their head every morning and walk a mile and a half to get fresh water for the day. Like our buildings in the U.S. They have to travel in a rickety old bus for an hour and a half to see the doctor and pray that there's enough funding them to get the medication for the next month and pray that they don't have an emergency health need. So, yes, people here in our country, even those that have to use emergency rooms because they don't have insurance, are spoiled. And because they haven't traveled outside of our country, or seen condition in third world countries, they have no idea how good they have it. So you you probably, like most people, um, like myself and Robert included, we see the sensationalized news reports coming across Facebook and Twitter and, and even the news. Um, I, I always I, I find it interesting to ask activists who've been around since, you know, you know, if you ask Peter Staley, you know, he called it the plague era. You know, do we have a sense that, oh, well, well cure's right around the corner and there's really no need to really kind of worry about it because we can just take a, a one-pill regimen and we have Ryan White programming. Um, you know, is that, is that the sense that we have, that, oh, we're going to have a cure next month or next year or two years down the road, and that doesn't really matter if we, we become infected? You just defined apathy in the current age of HIV. Um, number one, kids are taught in school that basically HIV is like diabetes. You should take a pill, you'll be fine. Um <laughs> They don't, they don't go into the side effects, how you're going to pay for it, stigma, disclosure, all the other wonderful little things that people with HIV have to deal with. 
As far as a vaccine or a cure, I guess because I've been hearing the word hope and a cure's on the way or a vaccine's on the way for so many years, and I have read so many studies, Mm -hmm. I will be so glad if I live to see it happen. But I think people are being over-optimistic, and I am one of the most optimistic people you will ever meet. But when it comes to a vaccine and a cure, I, A, know it won't be an American company or scientist that comes up with it, and that's just my viewpoint, whether people want to believe it or not. It will either be a Canadian, a German, a Swedish it won't be an American that comes up with it. And B, I don't know when it's going to happen. We know we can't replicate on a large basis what happened with Timothy Brown. I'm glad that he's cured or functionally cured or whatever people want to label him as. I think it's wonderful that he gets on and speak, but it's nothing that can be replicated on a large basis. Right. Um, I think that's what a lot of people get confused about. They they hear that headline of Timothy Ray Brown being cured, or the was it a, a four and a half year old or a six year old that they you know, uh, get the headline? Four years old, the Mississippi baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a, couple, a couple months ago. You know, they hear these headlines and they think, oh, well, if that person's cured, you know, there's, there must be a cure. You know what I mean? I think that the younger generation is that gullible that they hear the one headline and they instantly think that that's all they need to know. Unfortunately, you're correct. It's, they have hope, and because they haven't been through dashed hope 20 or 30 times over a 32-year period, they're self-deluding themselves that they don't need to be active, that everything's going to be fine. That's when a community becomes its weakest because you have older people like me that while we hope to be around another 10 or 20 years, studies have shown people from my age can make it about 40 years living with the virus. People that are diagnosed while they're still healthy today can live 50 or 60 years. But we have a huge gap. If you go to any conference, any large activist gathering, you'll have three-quarters of the room will be over 50, and you'll have another out of the other quarter. Half of them will be between 35 and 50, and the other half will be between 20 and 35. We need that number to be much larger than what it is. And unfortunately, I don't have the answer. I'm hoping with young people like you both and others that are becoming active can get more young people to be active. Yeah, I think it's really important that the younger generation, you know, follows in the footsteps of people like you, Dab. Uh, you lead a great example, Um you know, to other people who are looking for hope, and that's why, you know, we love having you come on. Um, you can stay with us a little bit longer, can't you? Yes. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to open up the phone lines. If you want to call in and you have a question or a comment for Dab, um, please do so at 
215-944-2, and we'll be right back with Dab Garner. Hi, what's up? This is Britney Spears for LifeBeat, the music industry fights AIDS. HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, is hitting young women hard. If you choose to have sex, be safe. Use protection every time. Help support LifeBeat Zero Transmission 2001 campaign by not getting infected with HIV. Don't be a zero. And we are back live. This is Pause Adam Radio. I'm Robert Brining, and joined with my great co-host, Aaron Laxton. And we are joined by our fabulous guest, Daddy Dab Garner. Dab, welcome back. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) I I, Um, I think think the first thing I would tell people is no matter what your status is, you can email and you can call. And most people are either on Twitter or Facebook or both. And you, if you're listening to this, you know at least a couple of activists. And all of us post when there's a call to action, when we need people to phone, when we need people to email their elected officials. And we even tell you what to say. We give you a link to find out who to call for where you live. So there's not any reason that people, regardless of their status, can't help make a difference for people living with HIV and AIDS. You know, uh, Dab, I actually, I don't know if your ears were burning on Saturday. I actually quoted you. Um, I was at a a Cure event, uh, Cure uh, Day, and um, we were talking about uh, uh, Stephen Holtz, who's been a long time. Long-time activist from here, um, we were talking about things that, in the early days of the of the plague, people would do just about anything if they thought that it could help them. And I remember, <laughs> you, say, I remember you saying that, and he told me something that tell me I you know I I have no doubt that he's telling me the truth, but he told me that there was um, a time when people believed that you could actually extract blood from your body, and purify it with um, hydrogen peroxide and then re-inject the blood into their body and that he had friends that would go to, like, South America. Did you know anybody who did this, or did you actually do this? I didn't actually do it, but there were a lot of things I did try. Let me just put it in the frame of mind that before 1985, if you knew you were dying or you had watched your friends die. Now, people have to realize you don't die from AIDS. You die from opportunist infections you get because of AIDS, and they are some of the most painful, horrible, debilitating, dehumanizing deaths you could ever imagine, not to scare the shit out of somebody that just has been told they're HIV positive. But if you've watched your friends go through that and you were getting sicker and sicker, Somebody could tell you to shove a cement pole up your butt, and it would buy you 24 hours, and you would do it. Wow, I've heard some crazy stories. Um, so we have a caller, so let's go ahead uh, to the lines here, area code 215, somebody from my hometown. Uh, you're on the air with Dab Garner. Who's this? Hi, this is Sean. Hi, who's this? Sean. Hey, what's going on, John? Welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? Uh, this is the second time that I've uh, listened to Dad, and um, I think he's a great inspiration, and I think it's very important that he points out that it is the global 
epidemic. Um, sure it's not as much of an epidemic, but as far as globally, it's still a major issue. But I have a question for Dad, actually, and my question for Dad is, is there, um, is there a forum or anything like that for long-term survivors that he knows about? Can you repeat that, Robert? The caller is wanting to know if there's any forum for long-term survivors. That's a great question. Do you know of any uh, forums like that, Deb? Um, actually, I do. There's one on the Pizzle.im website. At least I know there was. Still um, And there's also... I know on a couple of the dating sites, they used to have subgroups for long-term survivors, and then it would break it down by whether you were gay, bi, or straight. Now, that was more for dating or hookups than it was for actual activism. Um, that's the one thing I always liked about Am is that it wasn't for hookups. It was for people from the community to form a bond like we had when all this began, and when I say that, it's you know you got to remember before internet and before email, we had phone trees and we had community, and we only had each other to take care of us. I'm not saying that it's not a community now. It's just a little more impersonal because everyone's at a computer. I'm glad because that gives people in rural areas access to information. The downside is we don't have as much face-to-face time with each other. And that's why it's so important for conferences like Positive Living to continue to happen because that's where you get the face-to-face time and those one-on-one important conversations. Sorry, Aaron. Oh, no, I was just starting to say, well, two things. One, you're exactly right, Robert. So any listener out there who is either interested in Positive Living I can find out more information through Pause I Am, or if you're interested in sponsoring someone to go, um, who maybe, you know, because funding is always an issue. So that's one thing. Maybe, um, Dad, what, what we need some young activists to do is <clears throat> to start up a Thank a Long-Term Survivor campaign, where we re-engage those long-term survivors and those activists and those who have gone before us who fought that fight and who now feel like they've been disenfranchised by our communities. Wouldn't that be a great thing? I think that's a great idea. I've seen a couple of new things in the past couple of years that that do give me hope. Um, One is as I am. Two are younger activists like both of you who are using your voice to are more knowledgeable about computers and social networking than old parts like me. Um, And I'm seeing more women and minorities get involved on a state and national and international level. Now, I want to give credit due where it's due. We do have some long-term activists who are women and minority, but they were very few in numbers and for the last five or ten years. John, you asked about long-term survivors. Um, are you yourself a long-term survivor? No, I am. No, I'm not. I'm actually a 15 months diagnosed. Okay. So, well, but how, I'm, how, are one you, of my, how are you doing with that? I'm doing okay. Um, 
an ex of mine who was 31 just passed away, so that was kind of bad um, complications. But I'm doing okay. Um, John, have you been able to find support in Philly? Because I assume you're in Philly, right? Yes. Okay, because I'm actually I'm from Philly myself. So are you able to find support somewhere? Are you connected somewhere locally? Yes, I am. I'm connected very well. Okay, good. good. To you, Robert. Thank you. Um, But I just want to thank Dad, Aaron, and Robert all for doing what they're doing and continue to do a good job. And I really appreciate all the help that you've all done for me. So thank you. Thank you you for calling in, Robert. Yes, thank you very much. That's the one thing I hope Dad, the H. Perry, and I bring is hope to people and love and compassion. Um, we have our programs, Ambassadors of Hope, who are almost 500 people now in 18 countries who go and do events that I can't make it to, and they share the bear's message of love, hope, and compassion for people living with HIV. And then they take pictures at the events for the bear that we like to think of helping end stigma one picture at a time. Um, because half of the people in the over 800,000 pics we have are HIV negative, and you can't tell by looking at the pictures who's negative and who's positive 99% of the time. So it's, it's people think, oh, Daddy Dad is Dad the AIDS Bear. No, Dad the AIDS Bear is community. It takes all 500 people to make this thing work around the world. I could never make, as an individual, these parties happen everywhere that they happen, so I want to make sure that the people, all these people and volunteers and ambassadors who make this happen is a reason that this is a success. So, you know, I have a tough question for you. Do you, you know, and this is tough, um, what I've seen sometimes is that sometimes our community members who have been are those long-term survivors, okay? Um, and I when we're dealing with those those community members that are newer to their diagnosis, um, there sometimes seems to be, well, you know, we lived through the worst times of this and things are so much better, um, almost like a, a sense of you, you didn't live through the suffering that we lived through, so you don't really have anything to complain about. Do you ever get a sense that, that sometimes that's the attitude that our community has? I do think there are some people who feel that way. I am not one of them. I remember that for each person, their diagnosis is unique to them. They each come to having the virus a different way. They each are going to deal with it in a different way. Even though there's six stages, every this is very individualized for every person. The one thing I hope for anyone that's diagnosed is that it becomes a life-changing moment. And whether that means taking better care of themselves, educating themselves, living in the moment, realizing how precious life is, or and or becoming an activist, or more involved in their local community, state, national, international that they turn this in 
to a positive, not to be making a pun out of this, hmm. but a positive situation for themselves. You know, I've it's interesting because... Go ahead, I'm sorry. I've seen, unfortunately, in the early days, it become a very negative experience because there was little to no hope. The people still have to deal with the side effects, procuring the medication, stigma, disclosure. So I would never belittle or demean anyone that's trying to deal with their own diagnosis. And I would encourage others not to also. Now, I'm going to tell on myself here, um, because anybody who knows me knows that I use my own life as a an example. Uh, and That's why we love you. I was, what? I said that's why we that's love why you. you love me? So when I was, so like I said, I was diagnosed in June 6, 2011, and I was one of those gay men who had a fatalistic attitude. I always said, you know what? I knew it existed. I didn't know the particulars. I knew that, that there was a virus that caused AIDS, and I knew the media's portrayal. I knew things about, like, Ryan White and things like that. But I also developed quite a um, an addiction to um, methamphetamines, um, which, mm-hmm. unfortunately, is making a resurgence in our communities. And I said, you know, it's going to happen eventually. And so... I now tell young people and I now tell people of all ages that that you do not have to have that attitude. We have tools, not just condoms. We have PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, or if you've had an exposure, we have post-exposure prophylaxis. Right. But what would you say to that person that just like me, maybe that young person, maybe, you know, because we know the the largest demographic is 13 to 24, say they're listening right now and as a long-term survivor, what would you, what would Daddy Dab say to that young person that's listening to try to sway them from the dangerous behavior and actions they're engaging in that's putting their lives really at risk by contracting this virus? The one thing I would say to them is their life is more precious than they realize. That while you may feel like a grown-up, you know, puberty's hit, I remember what it's like, all of a sudden your parents are stupid, you think you know everything, and life's just a big party and nothing bad's going to happen to me. I would go, look at Lindsay Lohan, look at Justin Bieber. Let's look at people who are no longer with us, River Phoenix. You are not indestructible. But there's also not another you on the face of the earth. And you deserve the best life that you can have. Now, you have a choice to make. You can make healthy decisions and have a wonderful life. Or you can make unhealthy decisions and have to deal with the crap I've been dealing with for 32 years. You can spend $2 million keeping yourself alive for the next 20 or 30 years, or you can take that 2 to $3 million and live a nice life, hopefully help some people along the way, and make a difference in the world. 
but more than anything is you deserve the best life you can have, but it's up to you to make it happen. So this week I was, this week I was trolling through Facebook. Um, not, you know, uh, that's what I do. It's, I guess that's my job. And I came across something that maybe you can help me understand because I certainly don't understand it. Um, because I am very, I call myself spoiled. You know, I, my uh, strain of HIV, there's no mutations, no variants. Um, I'm sensitive to all the medications. And so I'm on a triple. It works great for me. But I recognize that our, there's some community members that maybe are not in that same boat. And so th- this particular person that was posting, um, they basically went on to say that they find it extremely difficult to take their, their medications. In fact, they won't take them. You know, is that something that we, we've come to know as pill fatigue? And and what would you say for that person that just feels like they can't keep taking these medications and they can't keep doing, you know, what, how would you convince them that they need to keep fighting the fight? I would tell them that from 2004 to 2008, I am, if they're an activist that goes to conference, at least two other people they know participated in a clinical trial study at the National Institute of Health on this very subject matter. Even when you have the CCR5 Delta 32 gene anomaly like I do, I was only able to come off of medications for 18 months before the viral load went high enough and my T cells low enough that I had to go back on medications or risk getting a a serious opportunist infection. Another activist friend of mine that was in the study had the shortest amount of time and had to go back on medications within four and a half months. So, while I can understand fatigue, that's why I tell people, when you decide to start medications, you have to realize this is a lifelong commitment. Because once you start, you're going to be on them for the rest of your life. And that's also something that I use when I go do education and prevention. You can't take holidays. You can't just come off medications. Well, you can, but chances are you're going to get either extremely ill or die, which is basically what happened to Spencer Cox. Uh, For people that don't know Spencer, he was an 18-year survivor, 20-year survivor, came off his medication, and eventually succumbed to an uh, opportunist infection. The body, once it's infected, has to have these medications to keep you healthy. And once you become unhealthy, it's ten times harder to build your way back to healthy. So while it's not fun taking the medications, it's horrible having to deal with some of the side effects for some people. It's just it is what it is. If you became infected and you want to stay alive and you want to stay healthy, then part of your part of the deal is taking the medications as they're prescribed. And, and to be honest, I, oh, sorry, go ahead, Darren. No, 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 you go. 
No, I was just going to say, in, you know, in reality, the medication nowadays, the, the side effects are, are very minimal. I mean, I'm on Trivada and Icentris, and my biggest side effect is a little bit of insomnia. I mean, the side effects, the medication has become so much better than what they used to be that those scary side effect stories that we hear of actually usually don't happen right now because they're not as bad. Less than 10% of the time because of the dosages that are used now. Uh, when you hear the horror stories, most of those are people that were on medication before 2002. Right. All right, it looks like we have a caller. Uh, let me bring him on the air. All right, caller, you're on the air with Dab Garner. Go ahead. Hey, Dab. Um, this is Mark Johnson in Jacksonville. How are you guys doing tonight? Hey, Mark. Hey. Doing great. How about you? Uh, doing, doing pretty well. Hey, I just wanted to comment on something that, um, first of all, can you guys hear me okay? Yes. Yeah. Okay, I just wanted to comment on something on one of the topics that you had had, had brought up. Um, I, I was first of all, I was diagnosed um, with HIV. Well, actually, I, I had an AIDS diagnosis back on um, uh, May seventh, two thousand and nine, and I'm doing quite well now for the most part. But anyway, the, the subject that I wanted to raise was um, about our young people and about um, the strain of HIV kind of re-emerging um, with our young people. And um, and my my experience uh, when I was first diagnosed um, was that, of course, I, I took it as, as shocking. And uh, but my 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 first thought was or. The first thing that was said to me um, by the the um, by the individual that that informed me of my diagnosis, um, they told me that it was no longer a death sentence and that they treat it as if they would any other um, disease that we have. And so, I, I remember that moment very clear. And it just, it, I even talked to my doctors and I hear on the news, you know, that we have all of these advancements um, in the, with the HIV medications. But I think it's giving our, our young people a the wrong sense of um, what HIV and AIDS is really all about, given, you know, what, what they've been told, um, you know, that HIV is no longer a death sentence and that it can be that it can be managed just like diabetes or, or any other disease out there. And that kind of bothers me. I I have to agree with you and the fact that they went too far when they swung the pendulum back. And what I mean by that is before a certain time in our history, people mainly thought of death when they were being diagnosed. And a lot of people who are not educated about HIV and AIDS can still have that misinformation. Um and they they swung the message so far to the to the left that people think it's now no big deal instead of being honest with them and going okay yeah you might experience this you're going to have to get your meds you're going to have to worry about disclosure um, stigma I understand why they're gentle with newly diagnosed people. 
but I think they've gone a little bit too far to the left to comfort the person after their initial diagnosis. You know, and that's why I say thank you, Mark, for that call. Um, you know, what I say too, Dab, and I know Robert's heard me say this, and I generally everywhere I kind of I speak at, I say HIV is not a death sentence, but it is a life sentence. And in as much as we have to change our lifestyle, and you will be living mm-hmm. with this unless a cure comes in, you know, tomorrow. But even then, it's not something going to be rolled out to everybody, and certainly our long-term survivors, it may not be able to be rolled out for them. So we have to implement those real life changes. So, Deb, we're getting in the last few minutes of the show here, and we want to certainly give you time to, you know, if people want to get involved with Deb's AIDS Fair, um, tell our listeners how they can either support through financing or or however they may do it um, to support your endeavors with helping children that are living with HIV. I appreciate it. Um, you can go to our website, www.dabtheaidsfairproject.com, and go to the Make a Donation section of the website. Uh, at the bottom of the page, you can either sponsor a child at one of our teddy bear touchdowns. You can get your own AIDS bear. You can get your own breast cancer bear. All the proceeds go toward our children's party. Uh, we are uh, 501c3 through Lutheran Social Services, so it is tax deductible. So if you're rich or need a tax write-off or you belong to a corporation, <laughs> we can always use more sponsors. You can also contact us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, it's Dab, we have a page for Friends of Dab the AIDS Fair. We also have Ambassadors of Hope. Um you just mainly have to like to take pictures, like to talk to people, and want to share the bear's story of hope, love, and compassion for people living with HIV. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Daddy Dab, uh, Dab Garner on Facebook. Um, and we're always interested in helping people find their voice. The one thing I let people know about Dab the AIDS Bear is when you take that little bear into public, you'll be amazed how people will just walk up to you and go, what's that bear? What does that mean? And after you share the bear's history, it gives you an end to talk to those people. Now, if you're an activist in D.C., they've been seeing this bear since 1983. So they see you coming and they might try to run, <laughs> but you can just throw the bear and trip them. They go, I need to talk to you. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. We hope that all of our listeners will join in the efforts and support Dab's the AIDS Bear and certainly uh, look for Dab at a conference or an occasion near them because you happen to get everywhere. <laughs> Thank you so uh, much for, for being on the show, okay? I appreciate it. We can definitely use help with the sponsors. I know we still have about 340 kids we have to find sponsors for this year by December. Well, there you have it. Go there and sponsor kids. Dab the AIDS Bear Project. Dab, we love you so much. Thank you for joining us. Love you all, too. Keep up the great work, and we are honored to have you as our ambassadors of hope. Take care. Thanks.
All right. And again, for more information on our guest, Dab Gardner, you can go to dabdaysbearproject.com. Wow, what an awesome, awesome man, show, story. He's he's just incredible. He is. And it is it seemingly an hour and a half has come and gone and we have uh run to the end of our our span here. For more information on Robert Browning, where can people go? People can go to posim.com or dot org. Okay, and for myself, you can find me, Aaron Matthew Laxon, on Facebook and on Twitter, Aaron Laxon, or My HIV Journey on YouTube. We invite everybody back in a few weeks. We're going to have David Watt on October 20th, and award-winning, award-nominated actor from How to Survive a Plague, Peter Staley, will be joining us. Uh, Robert, any last words? Get out there and enjoy your week, everyone. <laughs> All right. Well, on that, we thank everybody for tuning in, and uh, we will talk to you next week. Well, this has been another 90-minute episode of Your Dose of Hope, brought to you each and every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But if you didn't get a chance to listen to it live, you may also go to iTunes and download this episode at any time by simply typing in, pause I am. You may also... Get involved in the conversation at pausim.org. That's the social network. As well as social media on Twitter and Facebook. You'll find Robert and myself both there. As well as Pause I Am radio show. We have some amazing shows coming up in the near future. With award-nominated actor from How to Survive a Plague, we have Peter Staley. As well as David Watt, who is the creator and founder of Mr. Friendly, anti-stigma campaign. Is there someone in your community or your state that you would like to hear more about, you'd like us to interview, shoot us an email and let us know. We hope the upcoming week is amazing for you, and we invite you to come back next Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to listen to more of Pod I Am. For Robert, this is Aaron Laxton, signing off. Good night.